59 years ago today, Motown had its first number one hit on the Billboard charts with My Guy by Mary Wells, written by one William Smokey Robinson, who will join us on the B side of this hour, believe it or not. We'll make it a Motown hour. Uh, and the rest, of course, after that number one hit, My Guy, was history. A conversation on the uh, top of this hour uh, about Motown's legacy and the profound evolution of soul music with Professor of Music, Dr. Tammy Cornoto. Dr. Cornoto, good to have you on the program. How are you today? I'm doing fine. It's good to be here with you, Tavis. It's good to have you on. Thank you for the time uh, this half hour before we get to Smokey, who wrote that hit, as I said a moment ago, and a bunch of other hits for Motown. Uh, let me just start with a, with a broad uh, a broad question, a grand question. I've been honored in my life to know so many of these Motown artists, to befriend many of them, from uh, Stevie Wonder to Smokey to the chairman himself, uh, Barry Gordy, who uh, I've had uh, many, many occasions to sit and have lunch and dinner with at his house. Um, but what's, what's, what's your take uh, broadly on what Motown uh, was able to just unleash in this country? Well, I think, you know, Motown really um, personified and embodied a sound of a contemporary modern America that was envisioned as being integrated uh, in every sense, culturally, racially, socially, economically. Um, and so that that has resonated throughout you know, the, the latter part of the 20th century and even into these first two decades of the 20, 21st century. So Motown is eternal in type, kind of embodying the hope um, that uh, black Americans, but I think also all Americans kind of envisioned in themselves and their country. It is, the, it is true that, uh, as I said, 59 years ago today, they experienced their first number one hit, and that was uh, transformative, of course, for the label uh, in Hitsville, USA, in in, uh, in Detroit. But they had already been around for five years. Um, give me some sense of what that first uh, five years was like for Motown. They had a bunch of songs that had done quite well, but it wasn't again until 59 years ago today that they had that first number one hit. Um, what's your? How would you frame, let me put it that way, the first five years of their existence before they got to really start making hits like uh, My Guy? I often tell my students that those were the struggle years. Mm -hmm. You know, those were the years where they were really trying to uh, create the product, uh, figure out what their 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 market demographic was, and really try to compete in a popular music scene that was already being dominated by a lot of small independent labels like themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, and so those are really struggle years to try to figure out that sound. Um, but also figure it out in a in a soundscape that was was really changing rapidly, mm -hmm. right? Um, because popular music was being mass produced. You know, we think about the Brill Building. Mm -hmm. We think about the sound, particularly of American popular music from about 1957 coming into, you know, 1963, 1964. Um, lot, a wide variety of subgenres, right? But one that's really marketed toward teenagers and young people. So it, it was, you know, they were really trying to find their niche in, a, in an already saturated market. Mm -hmm. um, we know it, of course, all these decades later as the Motown sound. But to your point about the soundscape, changing so rapidly at the time, uh, the advent of Motown, when, when Barry Gordy brings this to the fore. Uh, let, let, me, let me ask a question. Let me, let me put it this way. Why, why, in the midst of that soundscape changing so rapidly, what made the ground so fertile 
for Motown to plant and to grow. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, you know what? I think it was a business strategy we don't think about in terms of Barry Gordy and, and his dream for Motown, right? You know, he, he really, you know, in calling his music the sound of young America, mm-hmm. what he understood was that he needed to have a product that really resonated with with multiple constituents, right? But he also understood he could not alienate his black base, right, in trying to capture what was this large, widening white base who had uh, uh, an appetite for black culture. So when you think about what Motown did strategically, you've got some artists that have a little bit of a harder R&B kind of sound, and then you've got artists that have more so a kind of pop sound, right? Mm -hmm. So the sound was a conflation of things. So if you take the four tops, right, and you take um, like the Marvelettes, or you take uh, Martha and the Vandellas, right? And you listen to their sound versus the Supremes or the Temptations, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got the the you've got Smokey Robinson and the and the Miracles kind of in the middle, you know. You and you've got Stevie Wonder in the middle. Stevie Wonder really doesn't come to to his full articulated voice and consciousness until you know late sixties and seventies when he sheds that kind of childhood image. But still, he's important because he brings in that that kind of youthful child act um, aspect of pop culture that became became pervasive in the fifties, right? Um, but but you've got Martha and the Vandellas and and this and the four tops having this harder sound coming out of R and B, the gospel blues thing, and you've got. Uh, you know, Temptations of Supremes coming out of this kind of black pop crooning aesthetic, right? That was, that really you can draw a genealogy with uh, the kind of Sam Cooke mm. um, sound that, that comes out in the late 50s, right? So there's two kind of sonic genealogies of black music that are happening in the late 50s that kind of intersect at Motown. Mm. When we come and forward, and Motown has this product, yeah. you know, I'm, this product line. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. When we come forward to your point about <laughs> sonic genealogy, I want to come straight to that notion of sonic genealogy, and specifically this notion of gospel that you that you raise. When I hear stacks, uh, which came came along later, as you well know, uh, you obviously teach this stuff every day uh, at uh, Miami University of Ohio, where you are a distinguished professor in the Department of Music, specializing in African American music uh, and gender studies in music. Um, when I hear stacks, there's no there's no denying um, the gospel influence on the stacks sound. I want to hear though, and I, I never asked this question. I, I never even asked this question of Smokey or or Barry Gordy for that for that matter. But I, I want you to pinpoint for me the gospel influence on the Motown sound. I hear it clearly on the stacks sound. What is the gospel influence on the Motown sound? Since we're talking about sonic genealogy, that and a great deal more as we celebrate Motown's first hit 59 years ago. Its first number one hit, my guy. Uh, by Mary Wells, but they had so many other hits. You're listening to Dr. Tammy Cronoto right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Motown, of course, has had many, many number one hits uh, in the many decades that we've been enjoying the music of Motown as the soundtrack of our lives, but their very first number one hit came 59 years ago today, May 16, 1964, when Mary Wells bestowed upon the label the number one Billboard pop chart hit 
My Guy, written by the legendary William Smokey Robinson, who will join us on the backside of this hour. We continue now our conversation with Dr. Tammy Cronodal, uh, distinguished music professor at uh, Miami University of Ohio. I was saying uh, before that break, Dr. Cronodal, I wanted to get your take on the, uh, speaking of sonic genealogy, the gospel influence that you hear on the Motown sound. I think a lot of people don't necessarily connect those things because they did have sort of a pop sound, whereas Stax is so much more soulful uh, and you can hear the roots very clearly, but that's just my ear. What's your ear here? Oh, no, you're, you're exactly right. But I think, you know, that ha- that goes to people miss the gospel influence in Motown because we, we have a limited sound range for how we talk about gospel. But they really reflected, you know, what was this more so kind of very controlled and polished gospel sound that came out of, you know, some of those uh, traditional O-line churches that were in the North, you know, the mm-hmm. Baptist churches in particular, not the Kojic and the Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. That comes a little later. And so that kind of, and that hard gospel sound that comes out of stacks, right, you can hear that that's coming from that Southern um, kind of hard gospel quartet tradition mm-hmm. sound, right? And I think that's where you hear more of the gospel influences in Motown's music, particularly in that golden age period, you know, 64 to, uh, to 70, is that you hear it a lot in the, the male groups and the girl groups, mm-hmm. particularly the male groups, because really the male groups are, are a, a confluence of like doo-wop, but also the male quartet tradition mm-hmm. that came out of, you know, black social practices. So listen to the, the Temptations in particular, uh, and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, you know, and the Four Tops, and what they do in terms of harmonizing, how they utilize the different um, uh, vocal timbres, you know, Eddie Kendrick's very high tenor, right, oh, yeah. you know, coming out of that kind of falsetto tradition, mm-hmm. right, that we equate with gospel music, right? Uh, Otis Williams' deep bass voice, right? Even the crooning that uh, Smokey Robinson does, you know, is coming out of that gospel uh, quartet tradition, right? And so you have them essentially tempering it by not doing some of uh, a lot of the vibrato, um, a lot of the the screaming that you hear in the hard gospel traditions Mm -hmm. that came up from the Deep South, you know, Alabama, Mississippi. Um, So, you know, it's more so vocally than it is in terms of the instrumental performance. But what what, um, Gordy wanted to do was to temper that a little bit. Mm -hmm. He had to temper it because he understood that those were sonic codes for not just black people, but they were sonic codes for white people, Mm. right? And so he wanted enough of the flavor, you know, to to keep it um, relevant to what was, you know, um, this sound that black folks were familiar with as black music. But he also knew that he had to temper it in a little way to make it more accessible so, to the white ear. Yeah, so I, I, I take, I, I take your, your comment now to, to mean, and I, I wouldn't argue with it, and I, I, of course I read his book and we've had a number of conversations about it, but I take your point to mean that you believe that Barry Gordy intended to cross over by tempering that, that deep, soulful sound uh, that we hear in Stacks and other places. And I want to come back to Detroit versus Memphis in just a second here. Uh, but I take your point to mean that Barry Gordy wanted to cross over from the very beginning. He knew where he was headed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you 
any black business person within that business at that time, that was the goal. Not just crossover, but sustained crossover. Mm-hmm. So that's what we got to remember. Because black music had al- has always crossed over. Right. Since the beginning of the commercial industry, once they started recording our music, white people were consuming it. The problem was that we did not own enough stake in the business to ensure, like, the infrastructure of the business, Mm -hmm. what I mean, infrastructure of the cultural industry, to ensure sustained success. So look at what happens to Little Richard and Chuck Berry and, um, and, you know, all these black artists, Big Mama Thornton in the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. They make these wonderful R&B records that white folks are consuming. But then you've got these white major labels who buy up these songs and cover them with white artists, oversaturate the market, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a period of crossover, but then that's, that's stripped away. But what he wanted to create was a sound that would resonate enough with both of them and not be, not trigger the fears of miscegenation in white people the mm-hmm. way that rock and roll did, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To have that sustained success. That's why I said you've got to look at Motown sound as almost kind of being bipolar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I cannot alienate, I can't alienate. I can't alienate my black base. So I'm going to give you uh, dancing in the streets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm, but on the Supreme side, I'm going to give you stop in the name of love. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, <laughs> your different core audiences are going to hear different things. They're going to hear different sonic codes. Right. So you may, you, you, you get exactly what you want. Yeah. You maintain your black base and you may build your black base, but you also enlarge uh, the white appetite for this music yeah. and not just the U.S. Because we have to f- remember that Motown becomes a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You have white kids in England who are eating this stuff night and day. So much so that it triggers a Northern Soul movement uh, in England. Yeah. You know, when the Beatles come, they have been listening to this music, you know. Uh, the full swath of, of black music, but they, they get triggered to rock and roll. Dusty Springfield, I mean, to Motown. Dusty Springfield gets triggered to, to Motown, you know. And so you've got this global saturation of this, you know, um, kind of two-sided black sound yep. or two-sided American sound. I, I've never, as I say all the time, I, I, I always learn when I come in the studio every day. <laughs> I just said that moments ago. I've never, in all of my conversations, all of my years as a music lover and the various conversations I've delighted in having with all kinds of artists, uh, many on the Motown label, I've never thought of Motown sound as bipolar until you made that point. <laughs> but I, It's a powerful <laughs> point. Now, now, I'm, I'm going to have to marinate on that, Motown as, as bipolar, but I, I hear you loud and clear. It's it's a beautiful phrase, Professor Cronodo. I love that phrase, Motown is bipolar. So, so, so let me ask you, we were talking about stacks earlier. To what extent do you think that Motown sound, never, with, with all due respect to what Barry Gordy intended to do uh, five years uh, before he had his first number one hit, um, what do you think the city of Detroit, well, let me, let, me, let me frame it this way. Clearly, the city of Detroit is a character in the Motown story in the same way that Memphis is a character in the stack sound. One is in the deep yeah. south. One is in the north. I'll leave it there. Talk to me about those two distinct places and how those cities are characters in the sonic genealogy, if you will, of these two different labels, mm-hmm. Motown and Stacks. 
Well, I think if we take Motown, if we take Detroit and Motown, right, they both epitomized the hope of the Great Migration, yes. right? But they also represented how black people assimilated themselves to these largely majority white environments, right? Um, even though our population numbers may have seemed like they grew exponentially, and they did, you know, uh, following World War II, we still have to remember that the the Midwest and the North, where the you know Southerners came to, was was largely a space that was scripted in whiteness. Right. Mm -hmm. That was the lingua franca, even from the even before we start migrating there. Uh, I mean, I can go back. We we can't have this conversation today. But I mean, even when you look at the dichotomy of the early black experience in the American colonies between the north and south, it's not just easy to say, oh, you know, black people lost their culture. It has a lot to do with the environment and, and how things are able to be retained mm -hmm. or a, a, able to be acculturated to the culture. And so Motown really represented this idea of assimilation in Detroit as well, assimilation, hope, aspirations. It embodied really some of the core ideologies that we associate with the civil rights movement. That doesn't mean that Memphis doesn't, but we have to consider that, that the largest population of black folks was below the Mason-Dixon line, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, there's a small, there's a larger concentrated retention of some of those cultural practices and sounds that go back to Africa, right? Yeah. And so, and that is embedded in the environment of whiteness, even though white people oftentimes don't even acknowledge that they have taken yeah. what is the, the, the language of black culture, right? And so when you look at that sound that comes out of Memphis, you know, that that is really a representation of what is these uh, the biracial roots of Southern culture, yeah. right? This coming together, white and black musicians. But it's that hard gospel, and it's not just the hard gospel that's coming out of black uh, Southern churches, but also those white Pentecostal churches, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a mixing of that and that blues culture, the pervasiveness of blues culture. Mm. Now, what Stax did was it wanted to make music that that spoke to the grittiness, the hardness, the struggle, oh, yeah. but also that hope as well, right, um, that was, was embedded in the South, right? And it was a biracial kind of aspiration of hope mm -hmm. because we don't talk about those cycles of of poverty yeah. and those social structures that keep a lot of folks down, right? Yeah. And so that that sound is a sound of struggle and hope as well. Yeah, um, Barry Gordy's tempering notwithstanding, uh, as you well know because you teach this every day, it did not, obviously, that tempering that is, did not stop his music from being hugely uh, popular in the South. Oh, no, it didn't. In fact, you know what? I, I now having dealt with this for so long, when you look at the rise of both Stax and Motown, right, it really correlates with this mid-century black civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. That's what I call that wave of activity and activism that happens from the 50s, you know, into the late 70s and 80s, right? right? And what they basically embody is the different ideologies and the approaches to civil rights. Mm -hmm. One is aggressive, 
One is loud. One is declaring mm. what it wants. The other is, is a little more subtle. It's a little more about a gradualism. It's a little bit more about assimilation, right? That's rich. That's rich. That's rich. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they collide. Mm. Ironically, they collide right in 64, 65, 66. Yeah. Their histories collide. So they're battling each other. Nope. And they're claiming supremacy because Motown calls itself Hitsville. Yeah. And then you've got this southern label that says, mm, y'all might be Hitsville, but we Soulsville. That's it. <laughs> we, we got more soul, more yeah. consciousness. We come from the earth. And what we're bringing is blood memory, a blood memory you don't want to remember mm. because you're remaking yourself in this northern environment and in this sense of assimilation, which is not bad. I'm not knocking sure, that, sure, right? Sure. But then... Th Think about that in the civil rights movement, because 64 to 67 are the transitional years, right? That's when the, the coalition breaks down between those organizations that fuel that movement from 55, you know, to 63. The violence heightens. The, the movement begins to widen geographically, and we get black power. We get assimilationists. We get, you know... All of these things, the yeah. music is correlating with that. No, we're gonna need more time, uh, and I'm I'm still stuck on this. <laughs> I, I love this frame of Hitsville versus Soulsville and how they collide. I got 90 seconds left here. I, I promise we'll have you back to do more about. I, I'm a music lover, as you can tell, uh, as many in our audience yeah. are, and obviously you are. Let me close with this. Um, in, in 90 seconds, uh, I mentioned again, uh, 59 years ago today, they had their first number one hit with My Guy. How did that change the fortunes of the label Motown? Oh yeah, that put Motown on the map. Yeah, and that signified that Motown had a had the formula. You know, it, it's it's they had the formula at that time. And the the thing was, then how do we diversify it to fit all of these different um, ways that we want to market our sound? Most effective business strategy. They touched every type of demographic you could think of, with the girl groups, with the solo acts, with the pairing of Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye, yeah. but the male groups as well, and then you've got Stevie Wonder. You've touched every aspect of social culture and popular culture, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and you make a formula that everybody can appeal to and, and relate to. Music that's about joy, dreams, aspiration, memorable melodies that make you think you can sing them, and a great beat. You can see why she's a distinguished professor in the Department of Music, specializing in African-American music, concert and popular music, and gender studies in music. She is Dr. Tammy L. Carnoto, Miami University of Ohio, who I've been delighted to have on as we celebrate Motown's number one hit, 50, uh, first number one hit 59 years ago, My Guy by Mary Wells. We'll talk to the great Smokey Robinson after news, sports, and traffic. But for now, Dr. Conoto, good to have you on. We'll do it again. We didn't have enough time today. We'll, we'll, we'll work this out a little bit later on this program. I appreciate your time, though. Thank you so much. Great to have you on. William Smokey Robinson, when we come forward after news, sports, and traffic on KBLA Talk 1580.